Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Yeah, I mean it. It is good to see you. Um, I'm excited about what God is going to do and speak into our lives today as we open the word. And um, I'm so thankful that, that you were able to come out this morning given the forecast with the weather. And we're always curious to see who's going to actually show up. But uh, we believe that uh, God has a purpose and a plan. And so we, we hold on tight and let him unfold it for us. And I'm glad that he has brought you here today. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, just a moment, if you want to turn there in your Bible or uh, get there on your phone or your tablet or whatever gadget you may have. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we place blue Bibles under the seats around the room, and um, if you don't own a Bible, please snag one. They're getting kind of thin. We need to reorder, but if you can find one and you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. Feel free to, to snag that. I want you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, as we get ready to, to start uh, the, uh, the message today, I want to just kind of begin here. Um, I think that um, we, as a whole, when we think in terms of our spiritual growth and our relationship with God, um, I think when, when, we, when we consider what it is that causes us to grow, one of the things that we place very low on the list has to do with learning, thinking, and, and being cognitive of the faith. And here's what I mean by that. So we tend to measure our spiritual growth uh, a couple of ways primarily. One is by experience. We have an experience with God and we're moved, right? The adrenaline flows, emotions begin to flow. We sense, we feel God's presence. We're moved to commitment, to a renewed sense of love and affection. And we, we tend to measure then our spiritual growth based on experiences. We, we tend to move from experience to Experience. This was my spiritual journey early on. You know, I just I I'd get home from youth camp, uh, and three or four days after I got home, the spiritual high had fizzled, and I was longing to go back to youth camp. And so I would anticipate youth camp the next year, so I could be close to God again, and I could therefore grow. Um, another way that I think we tend to measure our spiritual growth is by morality. We tend to think spiritual maturity means that I'm perfectly obedient. And so we, we measure then spiritual growth by how moral we're behaving. And we do this to ourselves, we do this to others. And, and so when we come to the topic of thinking hard about God, learning about God, it's not that we would say that has nothing to do with spiritual growth, we just tend to place it low down on the list. Well, what we're going to see today through Paul's prayer over the church in Ephesus, so we're opening this letter he wrote, and today we're going to cover a section where he lays out for them what he's praying for them. Now, more than likely, um, this is something he has been praying for them for some time. Uh, that just the simple fact that he's able to write it out means that he was in thinking about what he wants to pray over them. So he prays over them. And what we're going to see today is this beautiful connection between our minds and what we learn and growing in thinking and our spiritual growth. Just to start us off, though, we see that even Jesus himself teaches us that learning the scriptures is an important part of growing in Christ. Matter of fact, after he resurrects from the grave in, in the Gospel of Luke, he pulls the disciples in and he says to them, here's how I want you to read the scriptures. And he tells them, when you read the law, the prophets, the songs, the, the entire Old Testament, when you read the scriptures, read those in light of me. They're actually all about me. So he's telling us, you need to go read the scriptures, but here's how you read them. And then right after he says that, he says to the disciples, this is in Luke 24, 45, Luke says this, then he opened their, what? 
minds to understand the scriptures. So we tend to think of relationship, we tend to think of emotions and heartstrings and what we feel towards one another. What we're gonna see today is that our spiritual journey, our spiritual growth and our relationship with God is driven by the thinking, the renewing of our minds. And here Jesus is unveiling their minds to be able to read the scriptures. In Romans um, chapter eight, Paul will actually go a little bit further and say this about living according to the flesh versus living according to the spirit. And in Romans 8, 5, he says this, for those who live according to the flesh, if we stop there, we would fill in the blank by saying, those who live according to the flesh are immoral, they're evil, they're wicked, they're liars. And we would tend to right, slide towards morality. They don't know God. They don't wear the Christian t-shirts. They don't, you know, they listen to pagan radio. You know, we would tend to go that way. Well, here's what he says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on something, the things of the flesh. So where their mind is set, that's what they, that's what they live, that's, you can tell who is taking precedence in their life, that's what they live by. They're living according to the flesh, it's, you can tell, they have their mind set on things of the flesh. Conversely, he says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So he's saying something very similar to what we saw last week, where he talks to us about blessings, and he says, hey, 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 Get your eyes off the dirt. Get your eyes off the earth. Get your eyes off these cheap trinkets here on the earth and get them onto spiritual things. He's saying the same thing about our mindset. If you want to live according to the flesh, set your mind on the things down here that are low. But if you want to live by the Spirit, you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Uh, in Colossians, he, Paul says it this way, set your mind, your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. So really, the, the, the conversation that we're going to have today has to do with engaging God with our minds and how important that is to our spiritual growth. Now, we are in no way going to say that your spiritual journey should be detached from emotions. God is a relational God. He created us with emotions. The scriptures are full of emotional responses to God. Go read the Psalms. They're dripping with beautiful emotions, sorrow and love, compassion, affection. Sometimes anger and frustration. So in no way are we saying that your spiritual growth as a Christian is detached from emotions. Okay? We're even going to talk about the imagination in a little bit. It's not detached from the imagination. God created. He is an imaginative God. As I look at the evidence before me, right? Now, and I'm not an artist, but if I were, if I saw you, I could draw you. But I couldn't just create you. Like, just seeing creation, just stepping into the created world, I'm able, to, I'm able to appreciate, I'm able to admire what has been created, but leave it up to me. It's going to be a, a very boring earth and existence that we live in. So God is a creative God. He's given us imaginations to be like him and to, and to reveal his glory and who he is through creative means, music, uh, arts, drama. Given us these different, so in no way are we saying that imagination isn't part of your spiritual journey. But what we are saying is this, that we, if we want to grow in Christ, we cannot do so apart from the growing of our minds. Now, I have, I've never been in a debate with somebody who would say that the mind has nothing to do with the spiritual journey, but I've had several debates along my spiritual experience with people who would say, 
You're, you're too worried about thinking. You're too worried about learning. This is supposed to be a relationship. You're just supposed to be hanging out with Jesus and just letting it flow. And, and, and I've had that debate. Now, when we go to this prayer that Paul prays over these Ephesian Christians, I want you to see a couple things first off. So we're going to start in verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Just stop for a second, okay? So what he's just covered are some really important things. Um, first of all, when Jesus was confronted, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are important commandments. And then in John 13, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, here's how the world will know that you're mine, by the way you love one another. So you see what Paul has just done for this church? These aren't mediocre, lost in heresy Christians. He just gave them an A-plus rating. I've heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for one another. High five, boom. Now let me tell you what I'm praying over you. Now look at what he, what he says he's praying over them. Verse, let's finish 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God, here's what I'm praying over you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you something. So now we're all ears, right? What, what are you asking God to give us? To give us something. Here's what it is. Give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know some things. Now there's some pretty big cognitive words there. Wisdom. Revelation, knowing that you may know. So Paul is praying for these Christians who seem to be, right, doing a good job at being Christians, and he's praying that they would grow in their knowledge. Now, two, two things I want to point out here. One um, is the first thing, is the spirit of wisdom. It depends on what translation you have, and this is just an example of how we should engage the word of God mentally and cognitively. Some of your translations will say a spirit, and some of your translations say the spirit with a capital S, depending on what translation you're reading from. There's a significant difference between those two. There is. Either, either we're talking about a mindset that I have, or we're talking about the Holy Spirit. See, we're supposed to engage the word cognitively. Now, I think the best I can tell from what's in the original language, this is actually talking about the Holy Spirit. It looks that way um, for the seminary nerds in here. It's in the genitive form. It looks like this is the Spirit of God, okay? And so not only that, he just got through talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that seals us and guarantees our inheritance. So more than likely, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the point. He's praying that God would give the Holy Spirit to those who already have the Holy Spirit. Think about that. He just told them. When you believed and you heard the gospel, this is in 11 through 14, when you, when you heard the gospel and you believed in it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now he's praying for them that God would grant them the Holy Spirit to give them wisdom and knowledge. And then this last thing, of who? Let's read it again. This is 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge 
Of who? And that's a really important uh, pronoun. In the first 14 verses of this letter, Paul has referred to Jesus 12 times, either called Jesus or said in him, in him, in him, in Jesus, in Christ, in him, in him, in him. So who's the him here? Jesus. So he's, gr- he's praying that they will grow in the knowledge of Jesus. He's praying this for people who already know Jesus. Now, now think about that. I know it's oversimplified, but in our Western culture mindsets, we tend to check things off of a list, right? Uh, start the washer, laundry, and we check things off the list, then we go on, right? And so we tend to approach knowing Jesus this way. I, I met him. I know him, right? I, we've met. We met at youth camp when I was 16. I'm saved. I know him. Now, to um, over-exaggerate the, the goofiness of this, like how would that work out in our marriages, and somebody comes up to me and talks to me about how well I know Hallie. And I'm like, yeah, I know her. I know her good. When was the last time you talked to her? Like, well, we've been married almost 10 years, so nine years, nine months ago. I thought you said you know her. I, I do. We've met. But you don't know her unless you continue and increase in the knowledge of her, right? And as we grow in our knowledge of one another, then we can actually grow in our love for one another because we know better what it is we love. And we have the opportunity, the more we get to know each other, to not love anymore, right? More and more things come up that make us less lovable. That when we choose to continue loving, the more deeply we love one another. Well, the same thing is true of Christ. And it's, it's a mindset that we have in the church that my salvation was a one-time event. It's where I shook hands with Jesus. He gave me a badge for my spiritual shirt. He, he gave me... He, He put together a crown, said, I'm saving this for you in heaven. Just let me know when you get here, and I'll pull it out for you. And then I just went on about my merry way, right? Started the dishwasher and walked on. Everything's good. See what Paul's doing here? He's praying that they would have more deeply what they already have. Now, that's profound. Because we also tend to be a culture and society that graduates, from this to that, from this to that, from this to that. We think progressively, don't we? In education, we think progressively in our work experience. Like, right? Nobody is manager, right? Saying, I really am hoping I get to go back down to minimum wage and just start over. Like, does it make sense? We grow in progression. You have to start and work your way up. But in Christ, he's not saying that. He's not saying, fantastic, you're safe. Let's move on to something else. What is he saying? He's saying, no, I want you to continue to think about what you already know. This reminds me of um, something else that Paul said in Romans 2. Um, As we work through the the series this year, we're not going to cover the book of Romans. um, Not to disappoint you, but for this reason. For most of what um, God will write through Paul... Romans serves as a commentary. So we'll be referring to Romans almost every week as Paul explains in depth what he's saying in brevity in these shorter letters. And in Romans 12, 2, I love this. Uh, Paul says this. Verse 2 of chapter 12, Romans 12, 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, if we stop, go, what does that mean? Well, I don't need to look like the world. I need to quit trying to be like the world. That probably implies some sense of integrity and morality and spiritual bearings. And like, so I, I don't need to be conformed to the pattern of this world anymore. Well, how do I do that? He says, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How do I do that, Paul? Youth camp? Is that what I need? I need an emotional, spiritual experience? No, here's how you do that. By being transformed by the renewing of what? Your minds. You see how important this is to your spiritual growth? God gave you your brain. It's a little brain. Okay, I... I mean, compared to the wisdom of of understanding the world, it's not much. But he gave that to you as a gift that you might be able to think hard and deeply about the things that matter and the things that are true. And God is calling you to think deeply about him. Not to graduate to new and bigger and better things, but to return once again to what is true and to think more deeply about what matters. It's a... so there's this, this way I think of this in terms of metaphor or illustration. I use the binocular um, illustration often because it helps me, right? So you look through a pair of binoculars at the object you want to see, and more than likely, you're going to have to make some adjustments. You're going to have to tune that thing up, right? And, and it doesn't mean that you're not looking at the object, but it just means the object isn't seen real clearly. And so over time, you adjust it to bring the object into focus, This is what I believe he's praying for these Christians in Ephesus. You've already got your eyes on Jesus. High five for that. You're doing a good job. You're loving one another well. Let me help you bring that into focus. How do we do that? By growing in what you already know. And Jesus begins to become more and more focused. It's what Paul will talk about um, in his letter to the church in Corinth when he says, right now I know in part because I see in part. Now, one day I shall know fully when I get to see fully, but right here on earth, I'm I'm continually walking out the process of honing in my focus on Jesus. So so here's what that, I believe, how that um, affects our spiritual journey. We, as human beings, approach really everything, but spiritual matters with presuppositions, okay? These these, um, predetermined assumptions and conclusions, We approach the Bible to read about God in light of what we already think about him. We all do it, okay? And so what happens is this. If you will go to the Bible and open it and then then ask God, open my eyes to see you more clearly, guess what? He will. And and guess what else is going to happen? Your assumptions, your predetermined assumptions, they're going to get refined and corrected. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and come across something that you didn't know God said about himself? And it kind of set you back for a minute. And maybe like had a moment of crisis. Like, whoa, I didn't know God was like that. I didn't know that he was also, no, not just a God of love and mercy and grace, but a God of justice and wrath. And maybe you read that for the first time. Like, whoa, I didn't, I need to think about that. I need to engage that with my mind so I can understand what the scriptures are telling me about who, who God is. You see, the alternative is that we, we subject who God is to our own imaginations and experiences. Now, I said earlier, your emotions are part of your spiritual journey, your imagination even, but there's a difference here. In one way, what we can do is we can allow the way life experiences unfold for us determine what we believe to be true, or we can flip that and and allow what is true define, correct, and identify our emotions and and, and our imagination. You see the difference? By, By revisiting what we believe to be true, right, it corrects what we think. So 
And this is still happening for me today. Listen, you don't graduate from seminary and all of a sudden your view of God is perfect. Everything is in view. Just like my marriage, this is a daily relationship. I walk with God as he unveils himself to me more deeply. Now you could think in those terms of, of maybe a stage with a curtain and, and God is continuing the process of unveiling more and more who he is to you. Now what's behind the curtain hasn't changed, right? But step by step, experience by experience, he's revealing more and more and more of himself to you. And so Paul is praying these over Christians, that you would grow in your knowledge of Jesus. Now, he's going to bring up three things that he hopes that they will see as they grow in their knowledge of Jesus. And he begins each of these phrases with the word what. So here's the first what. So this is verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Stop right there. Just in that phrase, he said this. What? Are your hearts supposed to be engaged in your spiritual journey? Yes, but what are your hearts enlightened by? Knowledge. You see how that works? What is true then, it channels, it, it helps organize, it helps refine your emotions. Now, continuing forward, he says, okay, here it is. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to see these things. First thing is this, what is the hope which he has called you? It's a very simple phrase. I want, as, as God reveals a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is, I want you then as a product of that to have a better understanding of your hope. Boy, we need to hear this today. I, I, think our, I think our view of hope is just way too shallow to truly comprehend the way the scriptures teach hope. We hope in things, right? Uh, we hope that Super Bowl is going to turn out. I, I hope that um, Seattle wins. I do. But it's, it's a pretty shallow hope, right? I mean, they may. It's what, a two, two and a half point spread? Who knows? But you see, like, my hope is contingent on how well a quarterback does and how well a defense does and what the weather's like and, and all these variables. That's a pretty shallow hope, right? And so we place our hope in shallow things like, um, I hope that my boss is proud of me this week and so I get to keep my job or I get the raise, I get the promotion. I hope that. And we hope in things that are contingent on, right, very shallow variables. You go one way or the other. But the scriptures don't teach that kind of hope to us. And we read Hebrews 11, verse 1, where it defines faith. This, let me just read this for you. This is how faith is defined. Faith is the, what's the word? Assurance of things hoped for. That's different than hoping that the football game turns out the way you want it to turn out. Now, you can pretend like you're assured that your team's going to win, but we will make fun of you when you leave the room. Because that's a shallow hope, Right? Cowboys fans know it better than anybody. <laughs> but the scriptures are teaching a different type of hope, aren't they? Paul will say this in Romans 5. Your suffering produces an endurance, and your endurance will actually produce hope. And then he'll say this, and that hope won't disappoint you. He's talking about a hope that's actually concrete that doesn't waver with the wind. Now, here's what happens to our faith and our hope as we walk through life experiences. Um, I think we've all been there, okay, where um, you've been in this one place in your spiritual journey. Maybe if, if you're a Christian, we're like, you just know that you know that you know. You're, you're set. I know this. I believe this. This is true. And then you walk through something turbulent, some form of trial or suffering or hardship 
and, you're, and, and then you get shaken a little bit. If we're going to be honest, right, we, we begin to doubt things for a minute. We step back and go, whoa, 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 I need, to, I need to reassess. Is this really what I believe? And if we're not careful, we'll call that like a moment of crisis. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not saved. And here's what I believe happens in trials and sufferings. I think this is what Paul's saying in Romans 5. Your sufferings, your trials, your hardships, your life experiences are going to be a refining tool in the hands of God. And what you truly believe will come out on the other side of the storm. The things that have been stripped away and burned away and pulled away are the, are the, thing, are the shallow hopes that you were hoping in. And Paul's saying, listen, the hope we have in Christ is a secure hope, an assured hope. And as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus, you're going to become more and more convinced, more and more assured. That's the first thing he, he prays over them that they'll see as they grow in the knowledge of Jesus. The second thing is this. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. We, we just left last week where Paul was talking about the, the, the inheritance that has been secured for us by the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just step back and say, okay, what is our inheritance then? What does that mean for us who are in Christ? That we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus and we would understand more clearly and more deeply what our inheritance is. In, uh, in Romans 8, um, Paul talks about our inheritance, and in verse 15 he says this, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We talked about that last week. This legal term means sonship adoption. You have been permanently and legally adopted into God's kingdom. Then he goes on to say this, By whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, right? This is the kind of adoption that's real. You, you no longer refer to God in, in distant, arbitrary terms, but you begin to call him more intimately, Daddy, Daddy. And he goes on to say, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What's that? What that's saying to us is this, in God's presence, you don't have to convince anybody. You don't have to remind God. Remember back at, you know, at Solid Rock on that Sunday when I gave my life to you? Remember? Like the Holy Spirit does that for you. and says, let me remind everybody here, I saved you. I've sealed you. Look at me in your life. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children then, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's step back for a minute and just look at a few of the things that we have inherited as co-heirs with Christ. The first thing is this. We have inherited a permanent position before God. At the end of this prayer, Paul is going to talk about the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at the right hand of the Father. Then next week in Ephesians 2, Paul is going to say, oh, by the way, you have been raised from the dead and have been seated at the right hand of the Father. Our position in God is secured. So we, we go to, 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 to the scriptures, we read 
from Hebrews that we are to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now think about that. The God who sits on the throne of the universe, Hebrews is saying you need to come into his presence with confidence. So I don't approach God's presence as a needy beggar, right? Just hoping he'll have enough pity to let me in. It's cold out here. No, we, we approach the throne room of grace with confidence. Why? Because the one who sits on the throne is also our daddy. Our position in God's kingdom has been secured. We have been given Jesus' position in God's presence. Now, what you're going to see with all these are things that you couldn't do on your own. These things are meant to set you back on your heels and go, wait a second, that kind of freaks me out because I, I don't think I can get into God's presence on my own. That's the point. That's why it was given to you as an inheritance. So we're no longer servants. We enter into God's presence as sons and daughters with full confidence because he's our daddy. Something else we've inherited with Christ is, is this, his acceptance. This is a very important conversation for us to have in the current culture um, because of how, how acceptance-prone we've become. Okay? It's driving a lot of things, political correctness and all these sort of things. Um, but on, the, on just a, on a, on a, on a, on a gut level, you and I having a conversation you and I both are driven by and, and tempted by and, and pushed around by acceptance. And we do desperate things to get it. Some people throw pity parties. Like every time something goes wrong in their life, it's amplified. Because why? They want, they want sympathy. They want some sense of feeling accepted. Others overperform. Work hard, work hard. If I work hard enough, you'll want to be my friend because if I show up, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do things for you. I'm going to serve you so that you'll want me around, right? Both are forms of what? Striving for acceptance. Uh, and the list goes on. We do desperate things to be accepted. I'm starting at a very young age, right? You watch your kids act like not your kids. Why? To impress their friends, to be accepted. Junior high and high school, um, you're tempted to trade things that are important to you for acceptance, physical relationships, for what? For the feeling of somebody wants me. Somebody wants to be around me. Did you know that you don't have to, you don't have to earn acceptance in God's presence? Oh, good. So you mean I'm better than I thought I was? Nope, because you've inherited Jesus' acceptance before the Father. That's why. You don't want in on your own merit. Trust me. And Jesus has taken his acceptance, the way the Father has looked at Jesus and said, that's my son in whom I am well pleased. And he's given that acceptance to you. God looks at you and says, my daughter, my son, in whom I am well pleased. You, you can't impress God. You can't act good enough to please him. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just being honest with you. If you go out there and you try to play the moral game to convince people you're a Christian or to please God, you're going to fail miserably. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a part we play in pleasing God. You know what it is? Faith. That's what the scriptures say. That's what what is true says to us. Without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. So you can participate in bringing pleasure to your daddy. It happens the same way that my boys bring me pleasure, by like believing that I can and, and trusting in me and wanting to be with me. Like when, when Calvin, our wrecking ball, um, he's our youngest, and um, yeah, he, we nickname him Wreck-It Ralph. He loves to destroy things. So when he brings me something, he's destroyed. He's broken. He's crushed. And he brings me this toy in a million pieces that's not supposed to be in a million, like it's not Legos, it's supposed to be in a million pieces. And he brings it to me and says, Daddy, fix it. He doesn't say, Daddy, can you fix it? He says, Daddy, fix it. That moves me. But then I realize, I can't fix that. I might have to go buy a new one. But it, it brings me pleasure in, in, right? in him expressing that he thinks I can like, it's just his trust in me, his belief in me, like, brings me pleasure in that same way. We bring pleasure to the Father, but don't go out there and try to be good to get on his nice list. Why? You'll never make it. He says, I'll tell you what, I will give you the acceptance that I extend to my son Jesus, to you. So we no longer have to try to prove ourselves to God, nor are we any longer striving to win God's approval. Did you know that, Christian? There's something else we, we inherit, and that's his righteousness. Um, there's a beautiful image of this in the story of the prodigal son, where you've got this righteous son who stays home and the one who goes out and squanders the, the wealth of the father. And the way the, just in the way the father welcomes him back in tells us so much about the heart of our father. And when the father welcomes him back into the home uh, in, in tattered, dirty, smelling like pig clothes, because that's where he's been. And if you've been on a farm, pigs are the smelliest of all farm animals. He comes home smelling like pigs. And what does the father do? Well, go get, clean, get yourself cleaned up, and then I'll, I'll hug you. No. The father embraces him and takes a clean robe right, a signet ring, a clean robe, and clothes him with identity. In the same way the Father has taken the righteousness of Jesus and he said to you, I don't want to mend your clothes. Come here. Let me, let me wrap Jesus' righteousness around you. You can't earn that. That's a gift. That's a gift. You've inherited that in Christ. is beautiful implications means that we are no longer shackled to shame and guilt now we we have a tendency to return to shame and guilt like a dog returns to his vomit is how the scriptures describe it but we're no longer shackled to it we no longer have to walk through this world watching over our shoulder for God to come get us you have the righteousness of Jesus if you're in Christ that's beautiful Right Before I met Christ, before I understood this level of forgiveness, I was shackled to shame. I had no way to get away from it. I could pretend like it wasn't there, um, and we do different things. We try, to, we try to drink it away. We do these goofy things to try to pretend like it's not there. But at the end of the night, when we lay our head on our pillow, here comes our past, right? Sneaking back up on us to remind us of what we've done and how we're not qualified and how God would never accept us if, if he knew everything that we had did. And Jesus stands in the gap and says, I don't think so. I've given my righteousness to that child. 
to that son and that daughter. You have no accusation here. In the same way, I, there's no accusation against Jesus. There's no accusation against this child of mine either. You've inherited that. Free from shame and guilt and no longer watching over our shoulder for our past to catch up with us. And this last couple of things, one, um, we've inherited Jesus' assurance in his identity. Think about this. Um, Jesus knew who he was because he knew whose he was. Think about that. Jesus displays a beautiful confidence in knowing who he was. And when we understand that we have inherited that assurance and identity, that we know who we are because we know whose we are. Now think about that. If we truly stand on that as being true, we no longer need the applause of men. Right? We are no longer striving to earn this. And we are also no longer crushed by the disapproval of men. When we know who we are in Christ because we're his, I love you, but your opinion of me, it doesn't sway me in who I think I am anymore. No longer moved by the applause of men, no longer crushed by the disapproval of men, no longer scarred by false accusations. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus displayed out of his identity. Like, I think in terms of like Jesus on the cross being falsely accused, did you notice how he never once got defensive? Right? Never once did he say, you're wrong and I can prove it to you. Why? Because he just wanted people to accuse him falsely? No, because the opinion of man didn't sway him. He knew who he was. False accusations no longer put him in defense. No, right? That's who you are in Christ. What did he say to those who were crucifying him? Father, forgive them for they know what? Not what they're doing. They were murdering him. And he said what? Father, forgive them. You have inherited this assurance and identity that, that allows you and I to stand face to face, eye to eye with our accusers and not be swayed by it. Here's the last thing I want to mention. We have inherited his compassion for the least of these. Going out and serving the least of these, clothing those who don't have clothes, feeding the poor. We're going to go out this evening as a church, and we're going to serve the homeless of Fort Worth who show up and throw a Super Bowl party. These are things Jesus has commanded us to do, but they aren't arbitrary commands. We sing a song here, and the bridge says, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. We go do that today because we've inherited Jesus' compassion for those who are hurting, those who are lost. Think about that. That's different. We're not, if you're going to the Super Bowl party today because you want this from the church, because you want to be able to you know, hashtag yourself, right? Um, or you want God to be really happy with you. Hey, listen, don't go. Stay home. It's going to be cold, okay? 
But if you're driven out of a compassion for the least of these, please come. Please come. Now, we'll see how it plays out with the weather and all that sort of stuff, but as long as the roads aren't icy, we're going to go do this, partially because staying home because it's cold is a lame reason for not going to serve the homeless. There. But because our hearts are broken for them. If you go for any other reason, please don't go. We have more than enough volunteers signed up. If that's you and you think, I want to be in the Facebook pictures and that's why I want to go, please stay home. Okay? We have inherited a compassion for the least of these as co-heirs with Christ. Like where Jesus stands between the accusers and the woman caught in adultery and he confronts the accusers and says what? You who has no sin in your life, you throw the first stone. Go. They drop their stones and walk away. He turns to the woman caught in adultery and says, listen, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. It takes courage to stand in that gap, doesn't it? That's the kind of compassion that we've inherited from Jesus, that we would do that on behalf of the least of these. He's given us the fortitude to stand with the shame-stricken, the humility to stand with the dirty and the forsaken, and courage to journey to the ends of the earth to find those who are suffering and without hope and take it to them. These aren't things we do to make God happy. These are things we do because we know who we are in him. We have inherited these things from Christ. Now here's where he ends. Verse 19, the last thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? We're not going to get into this deeply because next week we're going to come back and talk about this amazing, powerful thing that has happened that has saved us. Okay, but what Paul hopes happens in our lives as we grow in our knowledge of who he is is one, our hope becomes more deeply anchored, more and more assured, and a deeper understanding of what we've inherited in Christ. But then this last thing is that we would grow in a deeper and deeper understanding of the power it took to get us saved. And he wants us to grow in the knowledge of that. To come back next week and to understand more deeply this amazing act of God that saved us. Now, just in brevity, here's what he's going to say. Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power it took to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power it took to save you. Then he goes on to say this. And seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power it took to raise Jesus to the right hand of God is the same power it took to save you. Now let's, let's, let's land it here with a conversation about our relationship with God and pursuing um, that intimately, okay? So in the church world, if you're new to church world, I'll, I'll kind of help you out here and navigate this. We have, we have our own lingo in the church, um, and we... We think everybody understands it. So we talk about quiet times, okay? So all the good boys and girls who grew up in youth group, you know what that is, quiet time. That's my time with Jesus. Let's talk about that, okay? So here's what we mean by quiet time. We mean a time in our lives, hopefully every day, maybe multiple times a day, but at least every day, where we, we, we separate, we step away from the world for a moment, right? And we quiet the voice of the world. Sometimes we... We do that early in the morning. Sometimes we shut the door in our office. We put earbuds in. Um, do you, does anybody else ever put earbuds in and don't play anything? Yeah, those are called earplugs. I do that. But never when you're around. But, but we separate ourselves from the voice of the world somehow for this purpose, for this end. 
One, we want, we want to be able to clear our thoughts so we can pray, right? We want to be able to express things to God. God, here's what's going on. Here's where I need help. Here's where I want help. Here's where this person needs help. Here are the ways that I think that you need to be moving on earth, which is, is fine, right? It's just like when my boys come to me and say, this is what we need to have for dinner. Um, the other day, Hudson, I was like, he said, Daddy, can I pick where we go to eat dinner tonight? And I said, well, it depends. He said, no, I want to go somewhere healthy. I said, okay, then. You get to pick. You want to go somewhere healthy. He said, Jack in the box. <laughs> it's a true story. Right? So we bring our wants and our desires to the Father. It's part of our relationship with him, right? As his children. This is what I want. But, but if we stop there, if we stop there, there's really no spiritual growth. Here's what I think should happen in our quiet times. In addition to saying, God, here's all the things I want to happen, how about we do this? God, as I open up the scriptures in just a minute, show me more deeply who you are. Give God the microphone for a minute to speak back to you. And then as you open up the scriptures, go digging, go searching, be adventurous, go looking for something, right? Don't just read it and check it off the list. I think part of our struggle with understanding how the word of God works in our lives, we, we are not a very meditative culture. We are a, a linear stop here, stop here, stop here, stop here, check this off, check this off, check this off culture. And we, we do that with God's word. We read it and we go check. And, and we fail to realize that there is, there is truth embedded here. There are, there's gold embedded here. Anybody watch Gold Rush? And uh, Secretively, I want to be a gold miner. Just the thought of going and digging and digging and digging, looking for something of value. Go read Psalms 9 and, and listen to how the psalmist describes God's word as dripping with goodness like honey and more valuable than, than even gold. If you'll, if you'll dig in it, if you'll dig around, look in it, go after it. And here's what you're looking for. I'll give you three things simply you're looking for when you go into God's word. One, a clear picture of who God is. Pray that. The next time you have a quiet time, instead of checking it off your list, pray. God, show me more deeply who you are. I'm looking for you. Okay, here's what's going to happen. Your image of who you got, think God is is going to get refined and corrected if you do that. He's going to say, I know you think I'm this way, right? I know you think that God helps those who help themselves, but that's not true. And he corrects things like that, these, these goofy thoughts we have about who God is. He says, no, 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 actually, I help those who can't help themselves. That's who I am. Do something else. God, show me more clearly who I am. I'm telling you, it, it will deliver. The word of God will deliver and show you more clearly who you are. The third thing, God, show me what is true. Show me what is true. In a world that is shifting like sand from one idea to the next. And not to demean our exploration of the universe and science and medicine, these things, but let's just be honest. They're not exact and perfect. Don't, let's, don't debate it. I understand you can measure velocity and these kinds of things and calculate, but science is always updating itself. It, for me, science is a beautiful testimony of the glory of God. But science disproves itself every time it updates itself, like medicine, and, right? So bring your thinking to the word of God and say, okay, God, 
Show me what is true. Show me what doesn't change. Show me how to no longer be conformed to the way the world thinks about things, but renew my mind and conform me into the image of Jesus. I'm telling you it'll happen. That's what we mean by quiet time. And then what we do after that, we come out of that quiet time, we step back into the world, but we do so with a new set of lenses. We do so with a more clear picture of how God sees the world. We do so with a renewed sense of compassion, a renewed sense of mission, and a deeper sense of humility. When we spend time in God's word in order to get to know him, he transforms us. Now, we're going to end there, but I love how Paul calls us to pursue the things we already have in Christ. Rather than getting bored with what we have today and going on to something more shiny and something newer and something fresher and, and one more experience where I just, get, I just get really worked up in this service, Paul says, no, meditate on what you already know to be true, and it will continue to transform you experience by experience. I want to pray for us now and pray for you, and we're going to continue next week talking more about this powerful gospel that has saved you and this amazing work of God to to rescue us, to to, to bring the dead back to life. But but here's where we're going to land today. Um, I'm going to pray for you if you're not a Christian. I'm just letting you know that up front. And and what I I want to do is I want you to have the opportunity... um, to experience what I believe is true. I don't want to manipulate with emotion. I don't want to coerce you. I don't want to make false promises to you. I simply want to say, this is what God has promised to you if you'll believe in faith. By simply believing in Jesus, you have this inheritance. And I'm going to pray that for you, that you'd make that decision today. Um, Our prayer partners will be down here in just a minute, and they're here to pray over you, but they're also prepared to talk with you more about becoming a Christian. If you want them to walk you through that and pray with you, or just maybe have a discussion with you, they're here to do that. I'm going to pray that over us as the worship team comes back up, and, and we'll respond accordingly. Let's pray together.